the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is the Bob France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. You bet it is. Nine minutes after the hour of 10 o'clock as our number two gets underway on this Tuesday, the 21st morning of the fifth month of the year of our Lord, 2019. I wished you a very happy Kersenau day at the start of the show, and this is exactly why. Peter Kersenau, our good friend, is with us on his regular, regular Tuesday visit. Peter is a Cleveland attorney. He is a professor, an adjunct professor uh, of law. He is a civil rights commissioner in the United States Commission on Civil Rights. He is a best-selling author. He is a highly in-demand speaker, uh, and I don't know if I can fit anything else into the introduction. He's also our uh, our our, um, our uh, uh, calendar. He's a, he's our official calendar for Cleveland sports events of note. And uh, Peter Christenau joins us now on AM fourteen twenty. The answer. Good morning, Pete. How are you, sir? Bob, I'm doing great. Uh, only 110 more days to the first game of uh, the Brown season, 118 to Monday Night Football. I'm going to hold off on giving you the timetable for AFC Championship game. I'm still skeptical that we're there, but I have to say, uh, everything I read seems to suggest that this team is for real, and, and they are. I mean, objectively speaking, they've got talent at almost every position. I was surprised, though, also to see um, Freddie Kitchens say that this was the best offensive line he's ever been around. Maybe wow. a little hyperbole, but, uh, you know, that's um, you don't see those things casually. I completely agree. It's uh, the uh, the possibilities are really, really. Uh, I don't want to say endless, but uh, there it is a very, very high ceiling. I think that this team has. Whether they'll reach that ceiling or not over the next uh, the course of the next several months is is what we're all waiting to find out. All right, Pete. There's a lot of ground to cover here, my friend. So we're going to dive right into this. Um, I have so many different things that I do want to ask you about. Since you and I chatted though, and you expressed. Uh, uh, a desire to discuss the Equality Act. Let's let's dive into that. Um, according to the U.S. House of Representatives and the Democrat leadership, which passed this with uh, a unanimous vote among the Democrats, uh, and I think some support among Republicans, um, 
They're calling the Equality Act simply an extension of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. This gives LGBTQXYZRQ exclamation point dollar sign people the same exact rights that African Americans were given in 1964. So that would make it sound like a very, very good thing. Who could possibly be opposed to that? But that is not what this does. As a matter of fact, it creates a lot of inequality among other people who are not part of that movement, especially those who are religious and Christian in particular in this country they are are decidedly um the victims in this new quote-unquote equality fight yeah you, you nailed that bob that's exactly true uh this thing has been around in some iteration for quite some time i know at the civil rights commission we've looked at it a couple of times different iterations of it and what's interesting about it is you've got uh a peculiar coalition, so to speak, of individuals who oppose it. Usually you've got a peculiar coalition in favor of things, and when you have a peculiar coalition in favor of things, it usually passes. That's why um, I think in the foreseeable future this doesn't have any chance of passage, except you never know what's going to happen in the next election. It depends on the right. composition of the Senate, of course, and who's in the White House. But um, nonetheless, I think it bears examination because... This is something that's never going to go away. Uh, some version of this, as I indicated, has been around for decades. Um, it's been tweaked a little bit, but the essential elements of it remain the same. And for your audience, and I know I've been asked this several times when I do do uh, uh, speeches across uh, Northeast Ohio and elsewhere, um, part of the reason why you've got a peculiar coalition is because it has so many different impacts on discrete elements of our society. Uh, it would do a lot of things. We haven't even begun to plumb the depths, despite the fact that we've examined this for a long time, all of the domino effects of this legislation. But it amends the 1964 Civil Rights Act to provide, quote-unquote, protection, in addition to the protected classes that the 64 Civil Rights Act talks about in terms of race, sex, national origin, color, also to gender identity, uh, which, you know, your audience is sophisticated enough to understand that. I don't even have to explain that anymore. And sexual orientation. So what that does is, if uh, the, the, the starkest way of putting it that everyone gets right away is, and the reason why a lot of feminists object to this, is because we see this proliferation now of boys who are uh, transgender or they're transgender girls. They are boys, biological boys who identify as female, dominating sports. And it's becoming more and more rapid. Even though I, a couple of years ago, thought something like this was going to happen, I have to admit that many of my civil rights colleagues are pretty stunned at how quickly this has evolved, where boys are dominating at various levels of sports, especially track, but also we've seen it with respect to wrestling and weightlifting and uh, cycling. Uh, if it continues, then you can simply extrapolate from that because, you know, even though there are probably a finite number of transsexual women, in other words, biological males who identify as women, they, they've already begun to take first places at state championship meets in world competitions, and it's only a matter of time. All you need is a very tiny percentage of these individuals. And you can kiss the current state of women's sports goodbye. You, you see that in Connecticut, for example, uh, 
two biological males took the 100-meter championship. I think it was the 200-meter championship, some other things. Right. And the distraught girls are sitting there, and they know they got to be politically correct. Otherwise, they're going to be, you know, uh, subject to huge amounts of abuse. But they've been working all their lives. I know you, Bob, as you know, the father of of, uh, parent, of, of kids who've done remarkably well. You know, the father of athletes. Uh, you know, you work all this time, and you've got all these aspirations. Your kids have all these aspirations. They put in untold hours, and the next thing you know, they go into a competition in which they have absolutely no chance. And this goes beyond simply, do you win a game? Do you win a meet? A lot of people are hoping to hone their skills so they get the attention of college coaches so they can maybe get a scholarship. There's a lot at stake here. Uh, that, but that's only just one aspect of this. We're also talking about um, bathrooms where you know, they're open to anyone. Um, a, almost anything that you can think of where there is a privacy concern, forget the privacy concern. It is sublimated to the gender identity and um, uh, the orientation of a particular individual under the Equality Act. And believe me, it'll be mandated. We've seen this already where if you hold a, an objection because of, you know, concerns of modesty, not because of discrimination or anything else like that. Sure. You're going to become the victim of the Twitter hordes, and you'll be socially ostracized. You could even lose your job if you say the wrong things. People are petrified about this. and Teachers you know, are being you, fired already, even before the passage of this, Pete. Even before the passage of the Equality Act, teachers being fired for refusing to use preferred pronouns for boys right. who say, no, I'm a girl. Uh, and, and, and now, Pete, let me, let me make sure I clarify this for the audience, and, and you probably already know this. Not saying he's insisting on using the male pronoun for an actual male, just saying, I'll call you by your name. Every time I refer to you, I'll just say, I'll just say your name. And even if it's the female version of the male, you know, name that the, the person is requesting, no, you have to say she and her. In other words, compelled speech is the exact same thing as far as I'm concerned. Compelled speech is exactly the same as losing free speech. You, if you're forced right. to say something that you don't want to say, that's like you know not being allowed to say what you want to say, uh, and, and and people are being fired for that. And that's before the passage of the Equality Act. Can you imagine how many cases like this are going to happen when it, you know if it does get passed and signed into law? Yeah, it, it's uh, a real impingement on common common sense notions of individual freedom. You're right about compelled speech. It's one of the that's one of the theories that the teacher in that particular case is using that he's being forced to use language in a certain way by the government, in other words, compelled speech. Um, This is something that is pernicious. It's uh, a a real danger to freedom of religion especially. It has the ability to undermine religious expression. If, for example, we all know about the Hobby Lobby case, um, the Little Sisters of the Poor case, that was before we had a 1964 Civil Rights Act protection for gender expression. Um, and so now, with that enshrined, if that were ever to pass, 1964 Civil Rights Act, the Hobby Lobbies of the World, the um, uh, you know, Little Sisters of the Poor, and a host of other individuals, Masterpiece, uh, Masterpiece uh, Cake, Cake, all those, yep. Um, on and on and on. We can't even, you know, despite the fact that many of us study this, and I know your your friends at Alliance Defending Freedom, for example, they spend untold hours going through all the potential ramifications. There's no way we can predict how that finally uh, manifests itself. 
But we know, based on what we've seen thus far, this is going to have a significant effect on religious freedom in the country. And it's already, we see this even without the 1964 Civil Rights Act. The left has control, of course, of most of our educational institutions. We see it K through 12. It seems as if K through 12 is nothing more than, you know, an indoctrination center. I, I don't mean to be, you know, exaggerating too much, but if you walk into schools today, it's really extraordinary. Back when, you know, in the Mesozoic era, when I was going to school, we were learning reading, writing, and arithmetic, but those seem to be subordinated to sociological concerns. And parents, I think, have lost control over how their kids are being taught just uh, basic things about how you organize your life. And parents are being deprived of the ability to shepherd their kids through social, social norms that in the past were the sole province of parents and their families. Right. And giving up that kind of a freedom is uh, very, very scary. It goes to the essence of who we are as individual human beings as well as Americans. Peter Kirsten, I was our guest. All right, Pete, we're going to take a time out here, and then we're going to pivot now. Uh, a different kind of uh, absurdity uh, that we're going to discuss. Adversity scores among the, from the College Board among SAT t- uh, takers. Adversity scores, getting points for having a tougher life than other people may have. Uh, Peter Kirsten, I wrote a piece about this for National Review. That'll be our next discussion. Stay right here on AM 1420, The Answer. All right, 1025 now, right back to battle here. Uh, I shouldn't say that because I'm bat- not battling with Peter Kirsten now. He and I are actually on the same side here. But the battle is with the um, the woke community, particularly in the educational community now, as uh, the college board has decided that um, students who take the SATs and may not do well, it might not be their fault if they, I don't know, grew up in an impoverished neighborhood, if more kids in their school got free lunches than in other schools, if they only had one parent in the home. Those are adversity, adverse circumstances, and we should give them extra points for having had to deal with adversity. It's called literally an adversity score that they are now taking into consideration when kids take SATs and trying to get into college. Peter Kirsten now, back with us now, wrote about this for our National Review at NRO. Uh, all right, Pete. Uh, so let's. Uh, I kind of just gave a very, very loose uh, description of what this thing is all about. Why don't you go ahead and break it down for us? Yeah, well, you know, I'm sure some of your listeners have seen a number of articles about this. The SAT, the college board, which administers the SAT, says they're now going to calculate an adversity score. Now, on its face, if we hadn't been subjected to lunacy over the last 50 years or so from our intellectual betters, we might say, you know, maybe not a very bad idea. Instead of looking at things like immutable characteristics such as race to give people extra points and stuff for getting into colleges, maybe we look at things such as what kind of uh, difficulties has someone overcome to achieve. Maybe somebody has a lot of impediments in their place. Maybe they would have gotten an A if they didn't have to be worried about all kinds of other things. Uh, you know, I can at least entertain that for a moment, although I don't think that that's the way things should really work. I think that the whole reason for the SAT is to make sure that people are admitted based on intellectual merit and that we have an objective score across the country because different schools have different criteria and we have one uniform standard. But what the college board now doing is now doing is something that I think all of us are suspicious of because we've seen this being gamed in the past and we must necessarily believe that they are just coming up with another mechanism to insert race 
in a surreptitious fashion into the calculation again. And I have absolutely no doubt that that's what's happening here. And the reason I have no doubt is because they won't tell us how they're going to calculate these scores. And also because I wasn't born yesterday. I've been involved in this fight for a long, long time, and I've seen this before. Um, we have right now, because racial preferences in this country are not comporting with the Supreme Court's dictates on how you can administer racial preferences. The Supreme Court did say that colleges, and I won't give you the entire uh, exposition here, but the colleges can use race as a factor in admissions, okay, to increase diversity. Now, we can talk about the, the intellectual merit of that, the legal merit of that, but you can do it. You can use it as one factor among many. It can't it, be uh, anything more than a feather on the scale in the admissions process. But when you dig through the data, it's pretty clear that race is not just a feather on the scale, it's an anvil on the scale. In fact, for minority students, it is the chief criteria by which admissions officers make a decision. There's nothing that even remotely comes close. GPA, SATs, okay, maybe if you can score 70 points a game, that might be something that's... That <laughs> yeah, that helps. Yeah, it really does. But nonetheless, because there, are, because of that, because it doesn't comport with the current admissions scheme, doesn't comport with Supreme Court criteria, the Racial preferences in admissions are in legal jeopardy all the time. And right now there's a case pending, uh, Students for Fair Admissions, a group of Asian students versus Harvard. It's pending right now, and a lot of people are very nervous on the pro-preference side that um, at some point the courts are going to say, you guys really blew it. And there's a good reason for that, because they did. I mean, there's no way in the world that they are comporting with the law. And, for example, you take a look at Harvard. Harvard itself, as I say in my article, um, when the discovery process was complete, it was determined that Asian applicants to Harvard have an average SAT 218 points greater than the similarly situated comparatives for uh, black and Hispanic applicants. White students have 193 points higher SAT on average than black and Asian comparatives. I mean, beyond uh, a certain level of competence, it virtually guarantees admission. So with that kind of disparity, the fear among the pro-preference crowd is, you know, it's going to be struck down. And so they've got to come up with another mechanism. They think that this adversity score is a mechanism where they can camouflage uh, the real use of race by saying, well, we're using all kinds of different factors. But when you take a look at all those factors and put them together, it's pretty clear that it benefits people of a certain color all the time. And why is that bad? First of all, it's bad because we believe in equal treatment under the law in the United States of America, despite the fact that we have not been perfect in this country. We, that is our uh, ultimate aspiration. And second, it's because Doing what is currently being done harms the intended purported beneficiaries due to what's known as mismatch, because blacks and Hispanics are multiple times more likely, if they've been admitted through racial preferences, that is, multiple times more likely to be in the bottom 10 to 15 percent of their classes and to flunk out entirely. And that's why you've got this rampant grade inflation and uh, these proliferation of ridiculous courses, because Colleges are trying to camouflage the fact that certain students truly can't compete at that level. You know, Pete, everything you just said is so extraordinarily important, and yet it will fall on deaf ears of any of these individuals who think that coloring up the campus, diversity is more important than anything, even the success of the students who are being 
artificially admitted to these schools. And by that, of course, I mean given those extra diversity points, those extra, quote, adversity points. I think they can be used synonymously here. Um, you get them these extra points, they go in and they fail. They go in and they graduate if they do graduate with C's and D's as opposed to toward the top of classes at perhaps lesser uh, difficulty, I don't know how to phrase that properly, uh, but, but schools that are not quite as academically rigorous as a Harvard or as a, uh, you know, some other schools might be. They don't care if they sacrifice the futures of yeah. these kids, particularly of color, as long as it helps them diversify the campus so that they look woke. And that's, uh, that's one of the most frustrating things, frustrating things about it. The kids that they propose or they purport rather to help are the ones who are actually going to suffer from this when they can't cut the mustard when it comes to those courses. In, exactly in those, right those in learning environments. Pete, let me get a time out here. It's already 1032. Thanks for sticking around for an extra segment with us. Peter Kirsten, I'll back for one more time right here on AM 1420. 1055, final segment of the broadcast. Before we turn it over to Mike Gallagher, he will take you until noon. Dennis Prager will educate you until 3 o'clock. Dr. Sebastian Gorka will take over. Jay Seculo, Larry Elder. All day, all night, right here. The best in conservative talk radio, I believe, anywhere really on the dial or on the satellite or anywhere else where you can find it. Free of the buffoonery you get from other programs and other stations that just uh, aren't serious about these matters. Uh, I want to go back very briefly here in summary to what Peter, Chris and I were, uh, Chris and I, and I were just talking about with respect to the uh, adversity scores, which I kind of, again, use synonymously and interchangeably with diversity scores, because that's what this is all about. Kurt Schlichter at townhall.com suggests, how about we just use one criterion for selecting those who will get an opportunity to attend what are allegedly our best colleges? That's not quite true either, and that's another column, he says. Let's use this thing that you have heard, co- heard called merit. You get a bunch of points for, wait for it, academic merit by doing well on a hard test that shows your breadth of knowledge, ability to write, and the skills you have worked to master during high school. Then you get a few points for things that you have actually accomplished. Maybe you trained to be a good football player. Maybe you're a talented painter. Maybe you served your country in war while the rest of the aspiring freshmen were back home smoking dope, listening to whatever Drake is and texting each other about microaggressions. That's it. You get no points, none at all, for where your grandpa immigrated from or who you pray to or the type of people you find sexy. These immutable demographic attributes are meaningless anyway. We should focus on, wait, has someone beaten me to this concept by 50 years? The content of your character as demonstrated by how hard you have chosen to prepare for higher education. Whoa. Why, even our kids just might have a shot at the academic crown jewels our taxes subsidize in a system like that. Now, the elite hates this idea. They hate it. Why? Because objective standards are rigid and unbending and difficult to game. The elite hates objective standards. Merit. Because when they're forced to make decisions based on merit, that dirty little five-letter word, the elitists lose their ability to decide how to divvy up the spoils based on the elite's own subjective criteria. That's why merit is the only way your kid will ever get a crack at these opportunities. When your kids get screened under the elite's whole person analysis, he or she will get screened right out. Active in his church? 
He probably believes in Jesus and not killing babies. Circular file. Enjoys hunting. Gun-loving redneck. Dumpster. Dad's a truck driver. Mom stays home with, wait, four kids. Chances are this applicant never even thought to question which bathroom Z should use. Flush him. From Texas and not even Austin? <laughs> Republican. Kill the application with fire. Adversity scores are just the latest way to, that the elite try to ensure you don't share in the benefits of a society that we normal people do, who are normal without regard to race or anything else, but love of country and their inclination to work hard and play by the rules. Built, feed, fuel, and defend. That's a great point. It's very well argued. Read that one. I tweeted it and Facebooked it. It's on my Twitter. I didn't even talk about the social media toxic platforms today. Twitter and Facebook. France Radio, F-R-A-N-T-Z Radio. I tweeted uh, uh, Kurt Schlichter's article that I just quoted from. And I will indeed tweet and Facebook post Peter Kersenau's NRO column as well. All right, that's it. It's all the time that we have for you today. Thanks to Peter Kersenau for a great discussion as always. A reminder, tomorrow, 7 p.m., the Cuyahoga Valley Republicans will be hosting me as I speak at the Brexville Community Center at 7 p.m. I would love to see you there, but I'll remind you about that again on tomorrow's show. Ryan Morrow returns to the program tomorrow as well, and probably Kurt Schlichter. We'll talk to you then. Have yourself a great day. Bye-bye. Enjoy the silence. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 